today in our chapter, we see a guy work really hard to put two people together who haven't really worked out the issues. It's kind of like getting Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky together and try to get them to shake hands. Before they're going to come out and shake hands and buddy-buddy, there are a few issues to work through. Death, destruction, and suffering. So, you can't just smooth over a relationship. You have to work out the issues. There has to be a just reconciliation. And this is true especially of God. You have to have a just reconciliation with God. So that's what we're looking at here in 2 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here, so brace yourself. So Joab the son of Zeruiah perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them. But the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. They said, Deliver him who struck his brother that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord the king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore, the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, 
in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask of you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore bring the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house but did not see the king's face. Now, what we've read in this section of scripture is that Joab manipulates David in order to reconcile him with Absalom. And somehow Joab has got it into his head, I'm going to stick these two guys back together. Now, you notice at the end of chapter 13, it says King David longed to go to Absalom. That's one translation. And it makes you think that David is sort of thinking about Absalom, kind of wants to get back together with him again. That's one way it could be translated. But really what it's saying there is that his mind is on him. He's thinking a lot about Absalom, not necessarily wanting to bring him back. When Absalom does come back, David says, don't let him see my face. So it seems like David was concerned with him 
But he wasn't thinking, I want him back. He was thinking more like, he's gone. Let him stay there. Stay there. But somehow Joab gets it in his mind. That's the same as I want him back. And so he's thinking, I'm going to put him back together again. It's like, well, maybe David wants to reconcile with him, but just can't bring himself to do that. But what if I... What if I did something? Help them out. Put them back together again. Who knows what makes him think that he can kind of do this and do that and kind of work it? But he does it. That's crazy. So he puts together this plan to get David in a spot, to see it in another light, in another perspective, and see, oh, I can bring him back. This is the error of my ways. So he gets this wise woman from Tekoa. And I guess Tekoa is known for their wise women. We're going to see another wise woman of Tekoa in chapter 20. He tells her what to say, and he sends her to the king to pretend to be a mother who is in mourning because her two sons were fighting and one of them killed the other. And now, relatives in the family, the avengers of blood, want to make that son pay for killing his brother. And the problem is that if they take revenge and kill that son, that's the last son she's got. There's no one to inherit. And see, the not so good side of this is somebody else in the family would inherit. And so she's going to lose her inheritance, and somebody else is going to get that, and it's not really good. So she comes to the king to say, look, help me out, save my son. Now this totally bypasses due process of law. What's supposed to happen? See, When somebody kills somebody and there's extenuating circumstances, you're supposed to run to one of the cities of refuge. There are at least six cities of refuge in Israel where you can run. It's a designated place of refuge, and you can be protected from the avenger of blood until the case can be heard in court. And if there's extenuating circumstances, then that person is entitled to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, and then he's free to go home. And nobody can touch him. But if the case goes to court and is found that, yeah, you killed him in cold blood, it was murder, then no one can save him. And 
the due process of law is that that murderer is to lose his life. Now, that is what's supposed to happen. It's the law of Moses. There is a standard and a way to go to order these things and bring about a resolution, justice. But here comes this woman, an old woman, breaking down on the king, all emotional. Help me! Oh, you poor woman. Well, what's the story? <laughs> my son! Oh, she's really broken up. Oh, they got it all fine. Let me see if I can straighten this out. Protect my son. And you can do it. And, you know, especially... In verse 11, please let your king, the, the king, remember the Lord your God. She's asking him to swear by the Lord. So he swears by the Lord. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she says in verse 9, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house. You know, this isn't fulfilling the law of Moses. And if there's any legal impropriety, she says, let it be on me, but not on you. He goes, okay. So then the lady springs the trap there in verse 13. Hey, you're the guilty one. You have a banished one. You haven't brought him back. So even God figures out ways to bring the banished person back to him. And you haven't done that. So this is sort of a replay of when Nathan came to David himself and told a story, right? And then says, you're the man. Well, Joab has just pulled the same thing on David, manipulated him, told a story, says, you're the one who's not bringing back his banished one. So, you know, this is the third time now that David has been manipulated. In the same way that he manipulated Uriah the Hittite to carry the message back to Joab, saying, put Uriah in the hot part of the battle so that he dies. So just as David manipulated to get his way, the judgment of God is it's going to happen four times to him. This is number three. There's one left to go. We're going to get that one in the next chapter. Four times David is lied to and manipulated. So David figures this out. He says, tell me the truth. Okay. Did Joab put you up to this? And then she just blabbers because she's thinking, oh, great. Now I got discovered. So her little blabber in there is kind of like, don't kill me, don't kill me. Joab put me up to this. So Joab is successful. David says, yes, I'll do this. Joab says, ah, I've found favor in the sight of the king. 
And so the king says, okay, let him come back, but he can stay in Jerusalem. Don't let him see my face. Now, what kind of a reconciliation is that? What kind of a relationship is that? You know, when I go to Seattle, I can try to show off and say, hey, you know, I live in the same city that Mick Jagger lives in, right in that corner. You know, Richmond, that's very close to my house. And David Attenborough, you know, he does all those voiceovers for BBC about, look at that bear, eat that little rabbit. You know, for all the BBC nature shows, look at them killing and eating each other. Ron Wood, Pete Townsend. Really? You live there? Yeah. But see, they can poke holes in my story. Well, how often do you see them? I don't actually see them. Oh, so you're just as close to Pete Townsend as I am in Seattle. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the kind of relationship Absalom has with David. They live in the same city. They don't see each other. Well, they're closer, but they're still very far apart. Now, let's read a very interesting scripture here in verse 25, shall we? Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him, when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now you ask, what in the world is that written there for? Absalom is gorgeous. That's what we're told here. In fact, uh, in verse 27, when it says his daughter was a woman of beautiful appearance, That's the very same word used in verse 25. Absalom was gorgeous. From the sole of his foot, top of his head, you would look at him and go, wow, this man is a sun-tanned Amazon. He's just Olympic. His muscles ripple. He's got a real six-pack, and his hair, you can tell he's a man. (sighs) He's got hair that doesn't stop when he cuts it once a year. It's a ceremony. Let's weigh it. How much is it? Five pounds of hair. Can you do that? (laughs) This guy is 100% testosterone perfection. He's phenomenal. And he walks into a room, and everybody goes collectively, because he's breathtaking. 
He is the cover of OK Magazine. He is Hello's Man of the Century. Why are we told this? Because he's the kind of guy everybody's talking about, how fabulous he looks. And see, when we look at a person, we tend to take his measure by what we see. So is this person a little hunched over kind of guy with his hair falling out and kind of a grumpy expression? We go, oh, that guy is, is a terrible guy. Look at him. And here comes a beautiful person. We think, oh, wow, this person is, is a physicist. Look how beautiful they are. They can do anything. We look at the outside and we judge by the outside. But if you look at verse 27, he has a daughter whose name was Tamar. And this tells you something about Absalom. He does not forget. His sister Tamar was raped by Amnon. He does not forget that. And when he has a daughter, he names her Tamar because he will not forget his sister. And the true value of a person is what they do in their hearts. That determines a person's actions. And that is the standard by which we measure a person, their actions. Because that shows character. That's what you don't see in a person. That's what God sees. And Absalom might be beautiful on the outside, but he is a cold-blooded murderer on the inside. Let's look at this last section in verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gishur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. All right. Absalom lives in Jerusalem two full years, does not see the king. He gets to go anywhere he wants, gets to do anything he wants. The only thing is he's not received by the king. There's no formal acceptance. There's no audience in the court. He can't be seen with him. 
He's on the outs. And it doesn't look like he's, it's going to change. In his eyes, he's going nowhere, and he doesn't like it. So what do you do with, I don't like this? One thing you could do is pray and seek the Lord about this and lay your issue before God and say, God, is this the way you want things? Can you change this? You could be thankful. You could say, you know what? I'm lucky to be alive. I killed the king's son in cold blood, and I ran away. And he didn't hunt me down and find me and kill me. In fact, I get to live in Jerusalem. Doing pretty good for being a murderer. Maybe I should just let it alone and not worry about it and just have a nice life. But you know, Absalom says, I don't like this. I want things to change. So he goes and, and sends a message to Joab. And Joab has figured out, well, maybe I didn't do such a hot thing here. Maybe this wasn't right. Uh, Absalom is persona non grata. And if I help him out, maybe I'm going to end up on the outs. So maybe I better just cut my losses here and fade and he doesn't answer Absalom. And Absalom sends a second time. And he finally says, let's get his attention, shall we? Burns down his barley field. Can you imagine? That's pretty cold-blooded. Listen, you don't ignore me, pal. When I talk, you better hop. What's that? That's toxic. That is destructive. That's self-centered. Especially when he says, look, either let him see me or let him put me to death. That's daring, David, to make a move. You want to put me to death for Amnon? Do it right now. And David doesn't. So you know what Absalom says? Okay. And he says, that's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. And that's what he thought all along. I am justified in what I'm doing. So there. So here's the situation at the end of the chapter. Absalom is brought back into the court. He can see David's face. Everything's great. But David has just received a person who resents him, who is irritated by him, who is offended because he wasn't brought back completely, had to elbow and push his way in, and finally says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to kill David. I'm going to take over the kingdom. I'm going to be king. I'm going to say what goes on. That's what the situation is here at the end of the chapter. So imagine them being physically close together, David and Absalom. But there's no reconciliation that's taken place. 
There's no change of heart. A smoothed over reconciliation. So what do we do with this? And the answer is, you got to have a just reconciliation. It's got to be right. And you know, what the wise woman said is true. God devises means to bring back his banished ones. And that's the situation of every single person, thanks to Adam sinning. You remember God says, everything is yours except this. This I reserved to myself. And that's the very thing that Adam trespassed. He took for himself. And then Adam ran. When he heard the sound of the Lord God coming in the cool of the day, just to take a walk, it sounded like Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park. Boom. Boom. He's almost on us. What do we do? He ran into the bushes. And that's the situation of every person. Banished. Just like Absalom. Ran away after he murdered. Well, what this means is we live far from God. Far from his love far from his acceptance. And so what God does is he devises means to bring back his banished ones. One of those means is acknowledging sin. Absalom says, if there is sin in me, can you imagine if cold-blooded murderer, why don't you just come out with it? I killed Amnon. I was happy when I did that. If there is sin in me. Give me a break. When David sinned, he came out with an acknowledgement. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is what he wrote in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You call your sins what they really are, sin. And those things that you don't want anybody to know, you can think of them this morning and go, whoa, okay, that's real. Call them sin before God. 
Another means that God devises is repentance. And it means to change your mind so that you change your actions. You know, there's no repentance in Absalom. You never find him saying, you know, I feel bad because I killed Amnon. I murdered my brother. I grieved my father. I hurt a lot of people. No sense in that at all. But here's what Isaiah says in chapter 55. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For the person who acknowledges sin and returns to the Lord There's compassion, there's pardon. And the reason we can acknowledge our sins and repent is because God has devised a just reconciliation. How can God, holy and just, say, I forgive you? What about the death? What about the destruction? What about the suffering? He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet and pretend it never happened. What he does is he judges all of our sins on Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imagine Jesus praying on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship with the Father from all eternity is broken. And it is broken for our sake. That should be me crying out, Why have you forsaken me? It should be you. But it's Jesus with this broken relationship receiving the punishment of God for sins. And then, because Jesus took away our sins and fulfilled everything that God wanted, God raised him from the dead to new life and a new relationship, never to be broken ever again. There is nothing that will ever separate the Father and the Son ever again. That is an eternal relationship. So for everyone who comes to Jesus, there is a just reconciliation. Our sins are taken away, not just ignored, but they're really taken away so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have a situation where God says, okay, 
You can come to the new Jerusalem, but you will never see my face. None of this, okay, we'll give you three months probation. And if you keep your nose clean, you know, then I'll keep you a little bit closer, but we'll just see how you do. But if you mess up, that's it, you're out. You'll get one chance. Can you imagine what kind of pressure that puts on you? He doesn't say that. He says, come here. And he receives you, and then you sin. And you go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. But God says, no, let's work this out. You confess your sin, and you are washed with the blood of Jesus. Now come to me. And you find out. Whatever happens, I get to come to God. I get to know God's love. Now that pounds you into the dust, and you say, why am I even still alive? But God loves me. It's a full reconciliation. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus, because he would be unfaithful and unjust to not forgive us, to not cleanse us. That would be unrighteous of God. And so we get this reconciliation that keeps us with God. We never have to be separated from him. Well, you know, there are people who say, well, that's lyrical poetry there, but I don't need that stuff. Me and God, we're going to work this out just fine. We're going to sit down, you know, and tell him a thing or two, and we're cool. Me and God, we're just like that. You ever run into people like that? Don't need no just reconciliation. This is a lot of legal argy-bargy. Well, your only alternative, if you refuse a just reconciliation, then you're going to face God by yourself. And you're going to face perfect love giving you in perfect justice all that your sin demands, which is eternal wrath. Contempt and everlasting shame. That's what a person will receive who thinks, I don't need no just reconciliation. I'm fine. That's why the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's why Paul says, we beg everyone be reconciled to God. So this morning, you get to thank God for this perfect and just reconciliation. And then we get to look at the wreckage of chapter 15 next week. Shall we pray?
Sometimes it's not safe to go to church where we are reminded of our sins. And it's unpleasant and it's uncomfortable. And we could say, you know, I think I'd rather just stay away. And yet your spirit is always calling us to come near. And to be washed and cleansed and to enjoy this perfect relationship that has been given to us as a gift. And we thank you for that. Thank you that we can confess our sins and have you deal with them justly, righteously, so that we don't have to die. We pray instead that we can enjoy life with you today. So do that for us. Your word says that you can bind up our hurts. Heal the bones that you've broken and draw us near. We thank you for that. Thank you for this gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.